friends, Romans, barbarians, welcome you all to this Fuds on Film podcast. My name is Scott Morris and I am joined today both by Drew Tavendale. Greetings. And Craig Eastman. Go Tyler, go Tyler, go Tyler, go! Go Tyler, go Tyler, go Tyler, whoa! Look at Tyler, look at Tyler! <laughs> That's been our podcast, thanks very much for joining. <laughs> <laughs> that one actually is relevant to this episode. There you go. Answers on a tweet, please. <laughs> uh, we have a bunch of films to talk about with no particular agenda other than we have seen them and it's the sort of thing we do at this time of the month. It gives us so, great sexual gratification. It most certainly does. So we're going to kick off today by talking about one that's available for catch-up just about now, I believe. It's uh, Kubo and the Two Strings, which means I'm going to hand over to Drew. Hiya! Hiya! <laughs> <laughs> From the moment stop-motion masters Laika arrived with their debut, The Excellent Coraline, they have done two things that so many other films for children typically fail to do. Allow for quietness. Coraline was particularly notable for this at a time when mental breather in Western animation meant going at 80 miles per hour with a thousand things happening on screen rather than 100 miles per hour. Coraline dared to be measured and calm, with periods of little to no action to allow both character and audience moments for contemplation. And secondly, they treated their audience with respect and intelligence, both intellectually and emotionally. Both of these traits, particularly the latter, are on display in their latest outing, a Japanese-inspired tale called Kubo and the Two Strings. If you must blink, do it now. Pay careful attention to everything you see and hear no matter how unusual it may seem, but please be warned, if you fidget, if you look away, if you forget any part of what I tell you, even for an instant, then our hero will surely perish. Kubo warns us over the film's stormy beginning, portentous, humorously admonishing the audience, both young and old, not to be distracted, yet also prophetic, as, pay attention to the meticulously crafted scenes, and you will see clues of what is to come. During the aforementioned storm, Baby Kubo and his mother are adrift in the ocean, finally coming to be washed up on the shore near an isolated village. Fast forward a few years, and we see young one-eyed Kubo as caregiver to his mother, who is suffering from depression. Kubo makes a few coins by performing in the village square, dazzling the crowds with his actually magical displays of animated origami characters, driven by the playing of his shamisen, who tell the tale of the evil moon king and the noble samurai Hanso, Except that, for Kubo, it's not a story. It's his family history. One day, failing to follow his mother's instructions to always return home before sunset, he is rediscovered by his mother's evil sisters, who want to take Kubo back to his grandfather so that he can take Kubo's other eye. Using the last of her magic, Kubo's mother transports him to a faraway mountainside, from where he must set out to find a legendary sword and set of armour the only things that will allow him to defeat the orb-desiring tyrant. His companions on this quest will be a living origami samurai model, a talking monkey brought to life from his wooden monkey charm, and a former samurai who was cursed into being a giant beetle with no memory. All pretty much standard fare, really. Set in samurai-era Japan, and incorporating or referencing numerous Japanese art forms, archetypes and stories, it feels every bit like it could be an authentic ancient Japanese tale despite being a newly crafty story. Kubo is fantastic, thrilling, beautiful, and pretty damn ambitious. Think animating small puppets frame by frame as a chore? 
Now imagine doing it with a massive skeleton whose torso alone is nearly three metres tall. It's a truly marvellous technical achievement. It is also astonishingly beautiful. Every scene a wonderful place to spend some time, and so many of them. But all of this is in service to the story. And while it is, at its core, a fairly traditional hero's journey, it also has plenty of other material into which to sink your teeth. It's charming and amusing, also at times sad, thoughtful and melancholy. And to return to my earlier point about treating its young audience with respect, it never ever talks down to them, and never feels the need to bring out Johnny Exposition and his exposition hammer to explain just what's going on. But perhaps it's the emotional intelligence it credits children with that matters most with the themes of young caregivers and parental loss amongst others. Overseeing all of this is first-time director Travis Knight, lead animator on Laika's three previous features. Oh, and he also happens to be CEO. And if he's been working his way up to direction, then he's achieved it with remarkable aplomb. This is most assuredly not a case of the boss using his influence on Julie and screwing things up. It's not all technique, artist and design that make Kubo so effective, though. The voice talent really helps too. Matthew McConaughey, though apparently half doing a George Clooney impression at least in my years, as Beetle and Charlie's Thrun as Monkey, gives sufficient heft to the two main adult roles and Art Parkinson, perhaps best known as Game of Thrones' Rickon Stark, gives an extremely assured performance as Kubo. This is just a remarkable film. It's thrilling and inspiring and entertaining and funny and lovely and I basically don't have anything bad to say about this film in any way at all. <laughs> I think you should see it because it's magnificent. Cool. I think I should see it as well because I forgot that I promised to watch it and I watched <laughs> The Mechanic Resurrection instead. <laughs> Poor choice, sir. Poor because, choice. Because you hate yourself, clearly. <laughs> I'm, op- I'm, hoping, I'm hoping you chose a little more wisely, Scott. Well, sadly I've seen both. Uh, <laughs> but not, not sadly in this case because Google was fabulous. I would just be reiterating everything Drew says. It's absolutely lovely. I like the story very much and it's very touching. Very heartfelt film. Yeah, so it's a wonderful thing. I do think that if you are going to cast Johnny Exposition and his Exposition Hammer but not use him for exposition, I think that is a miscasting of Johnny Exposition. (laughs) Um, But other than that, uh, I don't really have any complaints about the film. In fact, that is something I don't normally do with these kind of films. I actually looked up some other reviews because I wanted to see what kind of vile monster could not like this film. Mm. And there just, aren't many, though. Really, are there? There aren't many, thankfully. But they just, we just say that it's boring, and I just cannot imagine what they are missing in this film. It's absolutely gorgeous, and there's so many lovely little set pieces and just lovely touches all the way through. If there are people that are bored by this, Scott, I think they must be the same sort of people that I mentioned and the, like the type of film that I mentioned at the start, the the time that's yeah. a thousand miles per hour every minute of the thing, mm. you know, the ADHD generation. Because yeah. how else could you be bored by I this? I can imagine there are people who are expecting robots punching other robots in the face. That sounds awesome. Can I watch that film? Yes, yes, you can. <laughs> you can get them in a box set. I think there have been six so far. Lovely film, possibly my favourite of the year. If not, it's in yes, contention it's, for it. It's strong for me for a favourite film of the year as well. It's it's just beautiful. That good, huh? Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. It, I don't know why um, I sound surprised at that actually, because Coraline was an absolute treat. That was by far and away, and you know, yeah. one of the best three films I saw that year. Yeah. For mm. me, like I seem to have been following a a trajectory kind of similar to Pixar, mm-hmm. though they seem to have gone through a bit more quickly. It's like Coraline was a bit like. I mean, it's not an exact 
replica of their journey but Coraline's about like toy strips a really good film but it was them sort of finding their feet so it had flaws even though it was very entertaining mm. then a couple more films where they were just trying out some different stories and getting everything together I like Paranorman a lot Box Trolls was okay but nothing fantastic for me but then I think by the time they've got to Kubo though they've more or less skipped their Toy Story 2 stage and have gone straight to Toy Story 3 mm-hmm. <laughs> maybe there's not so much to choose between those right enough but it's quite remarkably accomplished filmmaking and yeah. more or less everything in here is done perfectly. I genuinely can't find a fault with it. Yeah, I mean, I was thinking when I was watching it, I don't know if it's just because obviously the Japanese themes, but I was thinking this is this is Miyazaki-esque at his finest. And, mm-hmm. You know, the Miyazaki that showed up for Spirit of the Way, not the one that wrote Ponyo. You know, that's, mm. that, that, that's the sort of bracket we're talking about here. So I can't wow. really give anything much higher praise than that. So yes, definitely. Go see it. Holy moly. I, I wouldn't belabor any more points. That is, that is, yeah, uh, it's a thing to get to. It's fantastic. It is phenomenal. To see it. So, guess from that, we shall move on to another kiddie favourite, uh, Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them. Now, I'm not sure exactly what I'd do if I was sitting on a pile of treasure that would make Smaug envious, uh, so perhaps it's not my place to comment, but I do think one of the things I'd be least likely to do would become a full-time Twitter troll, instigating <laughs> your followers to flood inboxes of anyone who takes issue with your poorly formed and often plainly incorrect political visions, while tweeting at vile misogynist hate-mongers that they are good men and national treasures. But then, I'm not J.K. Rowling, and maybe that's what brings her joy. Who am I to judge? I'm just some... In my defence, <laughs> oh Scott, no, you're not just some. <laughs> you're our <laughs> man. I need to eat more fibre. <laughs> in in my defence, I'm a who's capable of understanding the world and formulating opinions on events and people without tediously and tenuously referring them back to my previous creations, and a who doesn't conspicuously and deliberately seek a hornet's nest to poke a few days before I got something to promote with quite remarkable consistency. <laughs> what I'm saying is, while I'm glad so many people find joy in her works, J.K. Rowling is a thin-skinned and nasty piece of work in a beloved author's clothing. <laughs> her latest outing is Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them, a prequel, chronologically if not content-wise, to the Harry Potter tomes, set in a pre-World War II New York best described as Prohibition era if you swap out alcohol for magic. Into the scene steps Periwinkle Puffin Stuffer, played by Eddie Redmayne, who it transpires is hoping to return a rare magical beast to its native Arizona habitat, but bumblingly switches his magical suitcase containing all manner of creatures with the wannabe baker and in no way magical Jeremy Beadle. It falls somehow to disgraced ex-magical cop Brandy DeSarono, played by Catherine Watson, to clean up Periwinkle and Jeremy's mess, although additional wrinkles appear when Jeremy falls in love with Brandy's sister Amaretto, played by Alison Sudol. But such consortations with non-magical folks are, well, prohibited. Hence the era, I suppose. By ways I can't quite recollect, this ties into Brandy's ex-boss, magical cop Mordant Grimvile, played by Colin Farrell's manipulation of a teenager, who's somehow dangerously repressing his magic resulting in some big bundle of CGI effects rampaging through New York that Periwinkle and Brandy must stop. The final upshot of all this is that the scheme has been puppet-mastered by fell-bad dark magic of the New Hampshire Dark Magics, played by Johnny Depp who is the Morgoth to Lord of the Rings Sauron, in quite the most underwhelming reveal of recent times, given how sparsely dark magic is even referenced in the rest of the film. Now, a reasonably valid complaint for all of the Potter films would be that they always attempted to cram in too much of the source material into the film, even when a great deal of it felt like filler material. As Rowling's first original screenplay, she's clearly thought to counter that habit by writing a story that would comfortably fit on the back of a fad packet, even if cigarettes were packaged individually. (laughs) 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 But I suppose those tweets don't write themselves. 
Fantastic Beasts is to Harry Potter as Phantom Menace was to Star Wars, a film that I am very confident in saying, even with no knowledge of the contents of the further, I think, planned four films, has no meaningful relation to the sequels that can't be summed up in a sentence. Probably something along the lines of evil Johnny Depp exists. Just as there's very little more to Phantom Menace than man looks for spare parts, there's very little more to <laughs> Fantastic Beasts than man looks for escaped animals. The usual defence for all this is usually along the lines of it's world building, innit? But if there's no story and, frankly, precious little character to go along with, there's not much point to watching it. While there's a reasonably talented cast, there's not an awful lot for them to work with, and it all comes across as rather bland. In particular, I'm going to have to put Eddie Redmayne on the watch list, as either through happenstance or choice, he seems to be Hugh Granting himself. Oh dear. Giving essentially the same performance that he did here as he did in The Danish Girl, and given the golfing character between prototype Danish transsexual and magic Terry Nutkins, that's a little worrying. <laughs> Magic Terry Nutkins. Terry Nutkins was already magic. Helps <laughs> to explain the warlock hair. <laughs> Terry Nutkins got part of his finger bitten off by a weasel, didn't he? Otter. Oh, was it an otter? Brush no. up with your Terry Nutkins lore, Craig. You despicable man. <laughs> As an excuse to link up a bunch of CG set pieces, which is really all this film is, it's just about up to that meagre task, and the mechanics of the film, the pacing, the CG, so on, is adequate, which I suppose you'd expect with David Yates at the helm, who's been doing enough of these films to know what the script is by now. So, given that I expect the design document for this film was fleece some cash from people that miss Harry Potter. I suppose it's doing what it sets out to do, but don't expect applause for so unlofty and obvious a goal. A special FU, or whomever, came up with the decision to, in a film stressing so much the needs for wizards to remain hidden, an ending that demolishes entire city blocks and then has to almost literally wave a magic wand to make an entire city forget all of that nonsense. If you need an immediate narrative undo button, maybe not write it that way in the first place, eh? Yeah, I had heard that there was a ridiculously stupid Deus Ex Machina at the end and I was going to ask what it was but yes, right. that was it then Did Bobby Ewing get out of a shower? Pretty much, yes <sighs> Well, I, I have this liquid that makes everyone forget Oh good, that's that's good Thanks thanks for that Wait, and, uh, retinol? <laughs> that's the Deus Ex Machina of Fantastic Beasts <laughs> More or less uh, So I am aware that Berrywinkle Puffin Stuffer is not the correct name of Redmayne's character Or anyone else's <laughs> name for that matter But I'd forgotten them when I was writing up these notes And used them as placeholder names And having looked up the proper names Mine are better, so I'm keeping them uh, With apologies to anyone outside of the UK Or under the age of 30 Who are unlikely to understand references to Terry Nutkins and Jeremy Beadle <laughs> Don't watch this film, it's not very good <laughs> There you go, Drew. Did you did you see it? No, no. Excellent. <laughs> One more for us to avoid, I suppose. Speaking of which, Mechanic Resurrection. I believe you watched that, didn't you, Greg? <laughs> yes, yes, I did. Uh, and I've nothing prepared for this, so bear with me. You may re- you may remember Needless Vague remake The Mechanic from 2011. Uh, <laughs> Jason Statham vehicle, co-starring Ben Foster and Donald Sutherland, directed by the ever reliable Simon West, in which Statham plays Arthur Bishop, a hitman working for an organisation who specialises in making his assassinations look like accidents. It's all about Hitman the video game um, But it was, for me, it was a remarkably efficient And entirely enjoyable way to pass 90 minutes It was suitably nasty in all the places it needed to be nasty And it was directed with some aplomb and some pace And uh, I would not not recommend anyone watching it If only I could say the same for belated sequel Mechanic Resurrection which reaches us now five years later with, what's his chops? Arthur Bishop, <laughs> who, who faked his own death. Harold Bishop, one of the two. Harold Bishop also faked his own death or disappeared for a while and thought he was dead anyway. 
That's I know it, too much exactly. about Neighbours, but... <laughs> Honestly, Neighbours has a stronger plotline in Mechanic Resurrection. So. Yes, yes it does. <laughs> a single episode of Neighbours has a stronger plotline in this film. Now, at the end of the first movie, Statham's character, Arthur Bishop, faked his own death in order that he could retire in peace. To Rio, as it happens, where we find him now, the film opening with a ridiculously improbable stunt that ought to give you some idea of how based in reality <laughs> the fabric of this entry in what they are hoping to make, for some reason, a series... <laughs> Is it entirely based in reality? What's that? It's entirely based in reality, isn't it? That's, that's <laughs> how much it is. It's entirely. Well, here's part of the problem. Whereas the first film was stretching stretching credulity in places, it was still a relatively nasty, efficient thriller, grounded somewhat in some basis of reality. Whereas the mechanic resurrection might as well be Transporter 7, or whatever <laughs> they're up to by this point, <laughs> given the sort of death-defying acrobatics that we were treated to in the first five minutes. But uh, yeah, Arthur Bishop is disturbed from his uh, his fine new life in Rio by some shady woman who turns up at the behest of an old, would you say, colleague? Yeah, he's from that's the often orphanage, isn't he? Assassin. Oh, no. Yeah. He's a, yeah, well, I suppose, yeah, because they were raised in the. Raised there's together. some plot yeah. point about them having been raised in an orphanage to be assassins together. But apparently, <laughs> Bishop Bishop got out and this other guy didn't. So now he's got now he's got issues. Issues which, for some reason, he seems intent on taking out on Bishop by kidnapping Jessica Alba, who having spent about five minutes with Bishop, <laughs> is dubbed the love of his life. And when she is kidnapped, well, Arthur... It's entirely believable, okay, because she brought such personality with her to the role. Why wouldn't you fall in love with this person who has hair? She's a walking continent of charisma. Mm. She really is. But Arthur Bishop is therefore tasked with completing three seemingly impossible assassinations, which must be made to look like accidents, should his newfound love of his life, who he's known for five minutes, desire to be <laughs> back in back in his sweaty, muscular arms anytime soon. Now, I don't particularly feel bad about not having prepared notes for the mechanic because I don't feel as though it deserves much attention. Well, I think the people that made the film didn't really prepare notes for it. <laughs> no, no, I don't. I it's it seems bizarre that director Dennis Gansel, whose whose back catalogue I'm not entirely familiar with, sees this as an opportunity apparently to try and kickstart a franchise. Now, why a film that's lain dormant for five years and needed no sequel and received virtually no box office attention, <laughs> despite the fact it was a perfectly acceptable action thriller, why you would choose that to <laughs> try and kickstart a franchise in this time of monolithic Budget munching franchises. Such... I'm looking forward to the mechanic <laughs> cinematic. I was going to make exactly the same joke. <laughs> <laughs> We've already got the MCU. <laughs> We've already yeah. got that. Um, no, but Craig, it's it's so well thought through. Can you can you not see where they're going? It's like they have a character who's to make all these um, assassinations look like an accident, and then he successfully makes one look like an accident, then blows a hole with a massive explosive in the side of a prison because that <gasps> that will happen accidentally. That will. <laughs> That will. Now, the thing that became glaringly apparent to me as I watched this film was that whoever wrote this, Philip Shelby and five others, that's a clue as to. <laughs> In crayon. <laughs> yes. Whoever wrote this film obviously spent as much time playing the Hitman video games as I did because yes. the three supposedly impossible hits should be immediately recognisable to anyone who's played any more than two entries in that series, <laughs> having all been clearly cribbed directly from those games. <laughs> now, that's not to say that this couldn't have been crafted into as equally efficient and entertaining a thriller as the first movie, but this feels so loose and disjointed, lapping in the wind as it is, that it's almost impossible to derive the same level of inane, brain-numbing entertainment from this as one did from the first film. Now, 
Drew, no, sorry, Drew, you did see this, didn't you? I did. Yes. Oh, the three of us have seen it. Yes. Am I wrong about this? No. 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 Did my Good. comment about it exploding out of the side of a prison not give me some hint yes. as to how I felt for, about it? For the purposes of calibration, did either of you see the first McCarrick movie? Oh, yeah, I saw it. Yes, did I you, think, with you, didn't I? I did you enjoy it to any degree? remember it, but um, right. I know that I saw it. Yes. Now, I did enjoy the first one, and there was about, there was maybe half an hour where I was kind of enjoyed McCarrick Resurrection as well, largely because we've been on a a bit of a low-state diet of late. And it's like, it's good to see him doing these sort of, the garbage that he was churning out in the kind of early 2000s, these kind of films. I've kind of missed those in a funny kind of way. And this is sort of a return to it, but uh, not a very good return to it. <laughs> and, um, I think it's fair to say that we're relative fans of the state, right? We often have the conversation oh, about the fact that I think there's still a great Statham action movie to be made. I find him charismatic enough. He's an eminently likeable guy and an eminently likeable screen presence. And if anything, it was quite... I watched Spy recently and found it actually quite cruel because to see him in this role, which obviously proves the guy's got like real, real comic chops as well as this like forbidding, you know, action, this physical presence that he has. He strikes me as being a perfectly capable, perfectly talented guy and likable enough. And I want to see him being given good material. That's what I was going to say, Craig, is yeah, that's to followed up the, the revelation that Spy was. Mm-hmm. With this absolute clunker, I know that's and Spy itself should be, should have been evidence enough for someone somewhere to fund the film that Jason Statham needs because it feels like at this point he has not had the breakout that he deserves and I'm worried that he's just not going to get it at all at this point because he is I mean Jason Statham's how old now old enough that he's probably going to want to be hanging up his action trousers at some point he's 49 now let's not pretend that at 49 he doesn't cut a better action figure than i would at 12 well, yes, years obviously I mean, 12 years he's junior. entirely believable in um the expendables etc yeah but he's he's not got a lot more mileage in this stuff left clearly surely had another string to his bow and even in other things like it's a bit more sort of his like gruff statham than in your photographic penis movie that you like to quote so often Craig. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Shows a decent turn up, but think back to the first time that really we saw him when he was in Guy Ritchie films mm-hmm. in Lockstock and Smokers and particularly Snatch. Yeah. It's like, yeah, clearly he actually had comic chops then. Yeah, and we kind of, it says something that we kind of forget about that. Really, it's the way just his interaction with Stephen Graham in Snatch and the way he's delivering those lines, like about the Germans and things. And it's like, no, clearly, even deadpan humour he can do. Yeah. Maybe the ideal Statham film isn't an action movie. That's what I'm thinking, yeah, because there's no action in those films, but he just, he's, because mm. he's got charisma, that's the thing, which goes such a long way, even if you're not a great actor. At least he's a pretty decent actor, mm-hmm. but he's got clear charisma. And that, that you give him some film like Mechanic Resurrection which completely nullifies that entirely yeah uh, it's, it's a bizarre crazy. it's a strange beast both in execution and in conception and I'm not entirely sure what the need for it was I well I think there could be an argument to be made that yes the idea of a sequel to the original or the remake sorry the 2011 Mechanic isn't as egregious a proposition as some of the sequels to films that we've seen recently, or certainly at the very least it's no less deserving of a sequel than any of the others, but quite why the fashion that in this way, and what's so far removed, if the intention was to pay deference to that first movie with, you know, a view to setting up a franchise, then to have it differ in tone so wildly from that first film seems an odd choice in and of itself. I don't really get what they were trying... I know what they've said they were trying to achieve with this, but I can't quite parse it. I don't necessarily 
get that that's actually what was happening. It's just, it seems very, very odd. It doesn't feel like a sequel. It might as well be a completely different film altogether. But there you go. I feel like we've spoken enough about Mechanic Resurrection. <laughs> Too much, I would say. <laughs> Yes. It feels very much like someone wanted to make a The Hitman game film yeah. and didn't get that licence, so they've, they've, they've tacked it onto this instead. Yeah, that's uh, that's probably a pretty, as good a summation as you'll get. And there you go. I can't speak so eloquently on it because I haven't really formulated my thoughts and I certainly haven't written anything down, so I apologise if that sounded less uh, less structured and nuanced than normal. Not that um, nuance is something I apply that much. but Just worth mentioning at this point that we are not the only people that have felt this way. Good to know. It's the Exploding Helicopter podcast, which you'll find on Twitter. It's at Chopper Fireball. Very good podcast, and also do some of the best sort of one-line summations of films I've seen, so it's very well worth following their Twitter account and nothing else. Mechanic Resurrection was awful, and they speak as a fan of generic action <laughs> movies. The whole Jessica Alba plot point was atrocious. We could probably yes. shorten that sentence too. Jessica Alba was atrocious. Um. <laughs> yes. Poor old Jessica. Yes, I one further point before we move on. The film where we talk about photographic penises is a Hummingbird, or I believe it's also called Redemption in the States. We don't have access to his secret stash of home videos or anything like that. <laughs> or his iCloud account. <laughs> <laughs> Deary me. Well, that's enough of Organic Resurrection, which takes us on to your name, which we will hand over to Drew for. Like many influential and distinctive filmmakers, for as long as Hayao Miyazaki has been, well, the famous Hayao Miyazaki, there have been people looking for someone to proclaim the new Hayao Miyazaki. One such candidate is former graphic designer Makoto Shinkai, and while any comparisons to the legend really have to be made from a longer perspective, Shinkai has a stronger claim than most, particularly when it comes to box office, as his fifth feature, Your Name, known in Japan as Kimi no Nawa, has dominated the box office in Japan this year, raking in the sort of takings usually only reserved for an animation bearing Miyazaki's name. This is the story of Mitsuha and Taki. Mitsuha lives in the remote mountain town of Itomori, an ancient and traditional place where her authoritarian father is mayor, and much of her spare time is taken up with religious duties at shrines and temples, making truly disgusting style sake and kumihumo cords, traditional braids whose meanings of interwoven time and place will have resonance in the story. She wishes dearly to be far away from here. In fact, she wishes to be a Tokyo boy, a situation about as far removed from her current as she can imagine. Fortunately then, she soon finds herself inhabiting the body of a teenage boy in Tokyo, which she finds distressing and discombobulating to say the least. But his trips to coffee shops with his friends, his job in a busy restaurant and his crush on a colleague gives her a wild experience so very different from anything she has known before. Nice dream, huh? But it turns out that it isn't a dream. While she is living Taki's life in Tokyo, Taki is inhabiting her body in Itamori. And, because he's a teenage boy, he's obsessed with his new breasts, much to the bewilderment and disgust of Mitsuha's younger sister. It is only after their friends comment on their odd behaviour on certain days, of which they have no recollection, that Taki and Mitsuha realise that they are sharing each other's bodies. But when they wake up, they have no recollection of the other's name. So they begin leaving messages to each other in their phone's diaries, logging what they have done, what they need to do, and, quite quickly, some basic rules. No touching! They begin the most bizarre, yet intense and real relationship, and then a romance, which is both closer and more intimate than any, yet utterly, possibly irrevocably distant. The tortured but hopeful young lovers arrange to meet, finally, when the catastrophe that has been looming throughout the film shows its true nature, and their lives are thrown into disarray. 
The universe has seen fit to throw them together in this most bizarre manner, and now it seems that they must fight the universe in order to be together. But if only they could remember each other's name. Now, Japanese cinema has a strong history of responding to the various disasters, both man-made and natural, that have afflicted its islands over time. And Your Name is one of the first post-Fukushima films. It's echoes seen in a disaster that threatens our heroes. Though it's very far from one note, invoking themes of puberty, coming of age, tradition and modernity, love, and boobs. Obviously boobs. There is much in evidence here of one of the principal reasons I prefer hand-drawn. Now let's set aside the fact that computers are used in the process. You know very well what I mean. Hand-drawn animation over computer-generated animation. Soul. While there is, without any doubt, a great deal of artistry and skill involved in many computer-animated films, there are also crude, plasticky works chucked out en masse, but that is, of course, also no different to traditional animation. At the very highest levels of the craft, this style of animation has something special in it, especially in its art that CG animation just can't match, and that I've never been able quite to fully describe. It's something magical. It's why I use the word soul, because it seems to be something inner and ethereal, and your name has plenty of it. It's absolutely gorgeous and I challenge you to find more beautiful skies than an animation. Every location's gleaming and alive and vibrant, and on occasion changing style to evoke pastels and watercolours, heightening the dreamlike quality of parts of the film. It's accompanied also by a wonderful soundtrack by popular Japanese band Radwimps. I don't understand the name of that, so don't ask me. An ensemble capable of both upbeat, catchy J-pop anthems, though this at times does feel a little overused and betrays the target demographic, as well as beautiful instrumental pieces worthy of Joe Hisashi himself. What could have been simply a middling animated take on Freaky Friday, vice versa-like stories for adolescents is, in fact, thanks to a compelling story, great music and beautiful, beautiful visuals, a wonder. It's beautifully drawn, layered, touching, warm, universal, often very funny, and just generally lovely all round. It's very much worth making a particular effort to see this, and also to keep the name of Makoto Shinkai in your mind. I think we'll be hearing much more of it in time to come. Pretty good, yes, I saw this one too, and uh, I I agree with Drew, to the point that I don't think I'll add very much to it. So <laughs> very lovely relationships, very believable, always very charming. Looks gorgeous. I'm, I'm not convinced about that soundtrack. I believe they're so-called because they are wimps who are also rad. <laughs> but some of the bits of the structure are a little bit weirded. At one point, I was thinking that this was three TV show episodes sort of glued together just because of where those uh, musical interludes appeared out of nowhere and not really fitting in with the rest of the film. I didn't I didn't, I didn't like those tracks at all, to be honest. See, there's the uh, thing. Um, in the film, I remember very, very much in the film thinking that those felt odd. I like really mm-hmm. the instrumental stuff. Those they almost felt like music video sections. Those, yeah, I, I thought this was the uh, th- that's where the credits would have been rolling on the TV yes. show. You know, I mean, the, the, particularly just goes aware the structure. But I mean, that's a very minor yeah, point. Um, but afterwards, I downloaded the soundtrack and I keep listening to those J-pop ones because they're stuck in my head now. But it's in context; those feel a bit odd, and it's the it's really the only thing that bothered me about the film was the J-pop stuff felt a bit out of place. But again, I, I think that's more just the 
for the demographic. But that's, that's a minor point. Mm-hmm. Um, arguably, the point where they find out the twist, which I perhaps shan't reveal, was a little bit convenient. There is very obviously better ways to communicate with each other than the ways they were choosing to do, and it's clear in retrospect that that's only because well, you, you would ruin the twist otherwise. So that that was a, that's when you're th- analysing it, that's the kind of thing that pops up in your head as being a little bit funny, but it didn't really occur to me when I was watching it until well after it, so I guess it got away with it on that score as well. Um, yes, another really great animated film and one that is certainly very well worth looking out for. So that will take us on to De Palma, which is a title that very much tells you exactly what you're going to get. There's no clever artifice about this at all. It is a film where some people have interviewed Brian De Palma, and the subject is Brian De Palma, his career and his his works. And that is something which, of course, Brian De Palma is reasonably well-placed to comment on. Uh, so it's... It certainly seems like the go-to, the <laughs> go-to guy. He'd be, he'd be your first choice. It's very much a whistle-stop tour of his life and career, so what it gains in breadth that rather loses in depth. Uh, So (laughs) we're not going to be spending more than a couple of minutes on each of his films. It's rather superficial in a great Mm -hmm. many respects, but it does help that Dee Palma has an engaging presence and has had an interesting career from back in the days when he was starting along with Bobby De Niro and his acting classes and the, the direction school that he kind of perhaps school, the, the kind of director's guild that he was falling into with you know, Spielberg and uh, Lucas and all that. He's he's part of that kind of American new wave that we'll have to cover at some point and we'll look forward to far more than the French new wave, I think. Uh, so th- he's had an interesting career and he talks very engagingly about himself. He's not being... Well, I think he's refreshingly honest about a lot of things and where mm. things didn't work at this point. He's 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 happy to throw certain elements under buses. Which is, which take, is probably why he's not really working in Hollywood at this point. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and to be fair to him, he takes culpability as, at his uh, points as well. So I heartily enjoyed this. Mm. I'm not sure what you get from it in a sort of overarching sense that you couldn't get from just flicking through his uh, yeah. IMDb trivia pages for each of his films. But yeah, it's, it's an enjoyable watch, especially if you have a, an appreciation for the man's career. What you get is essentially, were you able to tap Brian De Palma up and say, listen, come and meet me down the pub, let's have a chat about yeah. your career. And uh, over the course of a couple of hours and a couple of pints, just say, right, bullet points, Brian, just talk me through your career and a couple of uh, couple of humorous anecdotes, and that's that's about it. It's like you say, it's engaging by virtue of the man himself, the presence himself, um, and it would perhaps have worked less without his involvement, certainly. Yeah. <laughs> but um, it's it's by no means a documentary. If you were hoping for any sort of investigation whatsoever into any of the controversy that mm. uh, De Palma's movies have stirred up through the years, I suppose most noticeably, or you know, the the headline one being his uh, on screen treatment of uh, female cast characters violence towards female characters has always been um, a sore point for some people and a point of great discussion don't expect there to be any great insight into any of that that is very much as you say it's a whistle stop tour of his back catalogue chronologically with one or two anecdotes per film and that's not to say that they're not interesting anecdotes but you know for for a man with such a potted career i can't help but you know i can't help but feel that there's got to be a lot more interesting to be to be said i mean we all know his successful films right the scarfaces the blowouts the carries the untouchables but 
I can't help but imagine there's got to be as much to say about his less successful films. I, for one, for better or worse, have always been a, um, a huge fan of Snake Eyes, and I think I'm the only person I know who really likes Snake Eyes, but that is a fatally flawed film. But again, the production of which and the behind-the-scenes stuff going on, there has to be any number of tales about. And while De Palma's in the mood to be basically spilling the beans on stuff, as as you rightly say, Scott, as he is here, kind of wish he would go a a bit more, yeah. a bit more full on, and just tip the barrel over completely, and just give us give us the really good stuff. There are any number of documentaries to be made, I would imagine, about the making of any number of his films individually, mm-hmm. and to expect to cover in any depth whatsoever the man's career in the space of ninety minutes is um, is is folly from the outset. So don't go in with any high hopes. It's um, it's. At best, it's a very enjoyable puff piece. It strikes me that it probably would have worked better as a podcast interview or something. (laughs) Um, A two-part podcast might have been more suitable, or at best, an audio slideshow with some interesting production stills thrown over his his commentary. But, uh, you know, for for fans of the man's work, I'm not going to say don't watch it. But don't expect to get a great deal out of it. It's it's no expose, and for all the sort of comments he has to make, which in some respects are quite refreshing to hear from a director of of that profile. Uh, again, it's probably because he's only not really part of the Hollywood system anymore that he is he's saying that stuff, and none of them come as really shocking revelations, to be honest with you. Hmm. So yeah, it's it's you know if you've got ninety minutes to kill and you're a fan of De Palma's movie, you know it's worth it for the two or three. Um, interesting anecdotes in there but it doesn't even really delve into the for such a technical director it doesn't really delve all that much even into the the craft of his movies which have you know which have delivered so many iconic shots and he's he's one of those where he's he's really been an advocate of the long take and he's done some spectacular work there and um, even that sort of thing gets very you know it's a very surface uh, approach to that stuff so yeah, like yeah. it's like it mentions the shot from Carrie, and it shows you the shot from Carrie, but it doesn't really tell you anything about the shot from Carrie other than no. it exists. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Well, you probably knew that already, especially yes. if you've seen Carrie, um, <laughs> which actually I have to say, bizarrely, I haven't. But I'll be rectifying that soon because one thing this documentary did do was make me realise that for a director, you know, of whom whose output I have enjoyed a great deal, there are actually one or two real tentpole movies in there from his career that I haven't actually seen yet Hmm. Um, and so I rectified that already by watching Blowout um, which I had had sitting on my shelf for years and finally saw this as an opportunity to go watch it and I'm glad that I did Um, it's got a lot in common with one of my absolute favourite movies of all time which is The Conversation but uh, yeah the other film that I'm going to check out off the back of this is I'll finally get round to watching Carrie at some point soon as well and that's my biggest takeaway from this is that it actually made me think oh yeah I have been meaning to catch up with those films and actually watching them is probably going to be a lot more valuable than having watched this in that respect but mm, there you go a diverting 90 minutes a, a polished DVD extra. Yes. <laughs> so we'll round things off today with a look at Sully. Oh, yes. I'd almost forgotten about Sully. Um, when I initially heard that Tom Hanks would be playing the title role of Sully in a Clint Eastwood joint, I was slightly confused. Would they be digitally de-aging him for this origin story behind the character so vividly brought to life by <laughs> David Patrick Kelly in 1985's seminal melodrama Commando? Imagine... <laughs> Imagine how entrenched my bewilderment became when Penny dropped that this was in fact to be a biopic of history's only other significant Sully, namely one Captain Chesley Sullenberger, the most downbeat of the fast foods, who you may remember for that thing in 2009. (laughs) 
where he landed a crippled plane on New York's Hudson River without loss of life, catapulting him to international hero status and giving Twitter a subsequent leg up the App Store chart. A cool story, bro, but given that it all happened within a couple hundred seconds of takeoff, you might be forgiven for thinking that there was scant material here for a feature-length movie. But what with modern attention spans not quite what they used to be, a large proportion of the populace remain unaware that Sullenberger was subsequently subject to investigation by the American National Transit Safety Board, and it is between this and the astonishing events of that fateful day in mid-January 2009 that the movie divides most of its time. Now, as is usually the case with this kind of thing, based on true events is a statement that comes with an entirely egregious degree of latitude attributed to the word based. <laughs> usually to <laughs> mean there was a man with this name and New York, definitely a place. <laughs> yes, exactly. We can point to that on a map. It's important to understand that much of what occurs during the NTSB hearings has been very heavily retooled to suit a dramatic <laughs> narrative. The filmmakers themselves have already gone on record to state that, yes, much of the witch hunting aspect portrayed here is basically b- this entirely predictable but important railroading of the actual fact of the investigation aside, <laughs> Sully is an entertaining piece of filmmaking for sure, but I'm a little baffled that it's being mentioned in awards terms. Uh, Hanks is entirely fine as Sully, doing that thing he does so well now, wearing the character of a stoic, dependable everyman like a comfortable pair of slippers. Uh, perhaps it's that the real Sullenberger is such a relatively anonymous character himself that makes the story both remarkable and at the same time somehow dull. Throughout the hearings, the NTSB vultures leer at Sully and goad him from their nest-like desk, and time and again, they are met with steady, considered, unflappable response. No doubt this is exactly the kind of character you want to be in charge of a crashing airliner, but it doesn't necessarily make for dynamite viewing, especially when the authors of this take have demonstrated a willingness to gaily subvert the truth. I was most reminded of Hank's superior performance in last year's Bridge of Spies, albeit with the intensity notched down a gear or two. Aaron Eckhart is window dressing as reverent co-pilot Jeff Skiles and his character serves little purpose other than to reinforce the viewer's expectation of Sully as the kind of man who quietly inspires respect. And to sport a stonking great moustache. He, do- he does sport a rather fantastic moustache. At some point I will do a top three moustache league as I did for <laughs> top, top three men's uh, haircuts. Uh, in movies, beautiful haircuts, and I wouldn't be surprised if uh, Aaron Eckhart here features in that in that list. It is quite a quite a quite a nice tash. Laura Linney, as Sully's wife Lorraine, is paid remarkably short shrift in a role that might as well have been delivered over Skype. And subsequent <laughs> players all fit neatly into the categories of shell shocked passengers or squawking investigators. This is Sully's show after all, but he's not much of a song and dance man. Eastwood's direction is typically low-key, in keeping with much of his recent output, and what visual flair there is has been handed over to the effects team for the numerous retellings of the event that pepper the movie, in case you'd forgotten it was about a plane crash, as well as somewhat less successful landing attempts that Sully sees as both sleeping and waking nightmares at various intervals. Again, in case you'd forgotten that New York has a tragic recent history when it comes to aviation. Uh, It all reeks of padding, and in light of the startling lack of character background our hero is treated to, being reduced to a handful of brief and largely uneventful flashbacks to his earlier career in flight, one wonders why the makers felt the need to stretch this to 90 minutes on a budget of $60 million, when a one-hour TV movie would have done the same job at one sixtieth the cost. While it is undeniably well-crafted and engaging enough on its first viewing, I can't imagine ever feeling the need to come back to Sully, and I'm left with a distinct impression that here was a missed opportunity to explore one of the precious few large-scale stories of human triumph that we've been fortunate enough to witness in the last couple of decades. Mm, three solid stars. I really rather enjoyed this film, but 
the word you mentioned there, Craig, padding, is mm. very accurate. I, really, I can, really enjoyed it on first pass as well. It's well made, well acted, thoroughly enjoying film, but it's very, very slight. Yeah. I don't know why it's been talked up for awards and things, but when you say padding, because I was thinking when it got to the end of the 90 minutes and I thought, that was only 90 minutes and there's, there's too much in there. Mm-hmm. I mean, for instance, like rather than just the nightmare stuff you mentioned, the backstory of some of the passengers, mm. that's absolute filler. It's neither relevant nor interesting. It is, it is expanding foam. Yes. All you need to know about the passengers is that they're fellow human beings and the person responsible for them probably did want to die in the river in a cold January morning. You know, mm-hmm. that's, that's all you need. You don't need wee treks through the airport and people buying snow globes and things. Uh, no, that was the most bizarre diversion that I really thought that something more was going to come of that and there was going to be some sort of symbolism attached to the snow globe and literally it, nothing. <laughs> nothing. Nothing. We should be grateful that we didn't see some sort of lingering shot of the snow globe on the plane as it sank or something like that. But Yeah. It seems it seems bizarre that you you either go all in with that and give us some sort of engaging backstories, you know, like disaster movie style. Give these people background stories and and try and get us some emotion, emotional investment in these supplemental characters, mm-hmm. or you just accept the fact that yes, we understand that they are all humans like us and that they don't want to be on a crashing plane, and you leave the story as the rest of the movie does and focused entirely on Sully. It seems to set out a stall that is then not manned. For the duration of the rest of the movie, it's bizarre. It's bizarre. Yeah. Now, I don't know how much this, how much resemblance this bears to reality, but the impression I got watching it was that Clint Eastwood and the writers have looked at this and thought, ah, Sully, genuine, everyday, all-American hero, right? Did his job so well, stoic, etc. That's interesting. The fact that he's a kind of reluctant hero and mm-hmm. he's second-guessing himself. All that quite interesting. It's just that there's not enough of a story there. It's like they had this idea and had no idea what to do with it. Yeah. So they introduced this witch hunt. Now, had that been real, and I didn't read the background to this that you have that you've mm. filled me in on there, but that rang hollow even in the film. Why are they so suspicious of him? Yeah. I get their job is to be to some degree skeptical. They want to yeah. make sure that the right thing was done. Well, the thing is, the movie the movie touches on it right because he mentions the fact about oh, because you know airlines and insurance companies don't like uh-huh. to admit that they've got a problem with their planes. And again, there's another really interesting avenue that you could go down. But do you know what felt when you say about it ringing hollow? Do you know what? Do you know which part of it really felt the most unrealistic to me is that they are so hawkish and so intent. On taking him down, they are these guys from the NTSB are really on the attack. And that minute at the end, where he produces a single bit of evidence and gets them to go back and admit how many attempts that the uh-huh. pilots in the simulators had, and all of a sudden, all four members of this NTSB who have been absolutely barracking the guy and who are clearly intent on destroying him turn around and go, "Yes, we are sorry." Mr. Sullenberger, you are truly a great American hero. And yeah, all that, of a sudden they're as in love with him as everybody else. It's just bizarre. That quaver in Anna Gunn's voice, um, another yeah. female character who gets very short shrift in this film. Too, yeah. um, she's breaking bad Anna Gunn, given fairly yeah. little to do, other than like, have her voice tremble at one point um, when she reluctantly reveals how many attempts they had. Yeah. So yeah, that rings hollow. It's, it is a bit disappointing because, like you say, the rest of it is well made. It's well acting. Tom Hanks, this is this is a real Tom Hanks role. You know, this like stoic, mm-hmm. dependable guy. And uh, they have fair note to the really good quality makeup, Tom Hanks, actually. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, that didn't look like your general aging makeup that looked highly high quality, but it's a perfectly enjoyable film. 
it's absolutely the sort of thing that, you know, some Saturday afternoon pops up on TV. That's fine. It's a perfect thing for watching then because it is, I say, well made. And I did find it entertaining. I wouldn't pay too much. I spent too much time thinking about it because there's, there's no substance there. No, and it's absolutely not necessary to pay the inflated ticket price to see it on a cinema screen. You may as well wait for it to come to on demand. It's Saturday afternoon fair. Yeah. And you're not going to regret watching, I think, because it does have good quality performances. I'm sure it has particularly strong direction for me, but it's not bad either. Again, mm. there's, there's not so much there, other than it's an opportunity for him to write the theme for some yeah. reason, which <laughs> surprised me when that popped up in the credits. I know, exactly. And I actually do quite enjoy Clint Eastwood's scores when he's in this. This is no different. Do you know what I think part, you know, a great deal of the problem in this movie is, is that one of the most remarkable things about Chesley Sullenberger is how unremarkable a character <laughs> yes. he is. Yes, but again, that's exactly the sort of person you want in that job. Yeah, right? again, but Solid, it doesn't necessarily make for and a, exciting. Yeah, it doesn't necessarily make for a super exciting retelling of what happened and you know the events following it. But yes, and so who do you want being the pilot of your plane? Do you want Denzel Washington in flight or Tom Hanks and Sully? <laughs> yeah. well, I want Tom Hanks, but Denzel Washington's character in flight makes for a hell of a lot more interesting story. Exactly. I was going to say my recommendation at the end of this would be if if you want to watch a movie about <laughs> about heroic pilots and and crash landing planes. Well, it's not crash. What was it? It was a it was a, a forced landing on water, wasn't it? Yes, yes. It wasn't as he goes to great lengths to point out. I didn't crash the plane. It was a forced landing on water. Ho 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 ho! What a character. Um, <laughs> yeah. If you had to pick one movie, watch Flight instead would yeah. be my advice because it is far more entertaining and it does at least have the good grace to explore the backstories of the main characters involved. Yes, and you didn't need, because that was a story about a pilot who'd been drinking, which happens, um, yeah. then can have have a necessary witch hunt there mm-hmm. um, and the torment of the soul and stuff. And there's, this is a much slighter film where a man did his job exceptionally well, um, mm-hmm. but then second-guessed himself for a bit. And then, so they had to just fill so much in there that, Watching this, at no point did I not enjoy it. It's just mm-hmm. that it's, it's say, not substantial. Total, totally solid three-star movie. Mm-hmm. As good as a three-star movie gets without becoming a four-star movie. <laughs> there you go. So I guess that brings us to the glorious end of this uh, podcast. Is there anything else we want to particularly discuss? Give a wee shout-out to a couple of people giving us props on Twitter. We always appreciate that. So thank you very much at Sonic Yoda and at Minute 5072. Your check is in the post. <laughs> <laughs> Particularly, you see some of the company that we've been recommended with other podcasts, and ninety nine percent invisible, and the Adam Buxton podcast. I'll, I'll take those as people of equivalent level to us. I think that's uh, that's about right. Yes. <laughs> the only thing that separates us from the Adam Buxton podcast is a distressingly um, addictive jingle. <laughs> we'll get right on that. <laughs> Although, well, buds on film song to the tune of girls on film does actually stick quite well in the head. So maybe we're not so far behind there. <laughs> I think it might be time to re-record it though I have some new tech That's good, I've been waiting for a second verse for a long time yeah, So we'd be delighted to hear from you on the Twitters uh, We're on there at Fuds on Film You can also hit us up on Facebook That's facebook.com slash Fuds on Film Or you can even email us if you want to Podcast at fudsonfilm.com So, thanks very much for your attention Here in 2016 We'll be back on the first of the month with our well a look back at the films of 2016 what were our favorites what were our not favorites so we'll be with you then but until then have a merry christmas happy new year any other holidays you may want to observe at that particular juncture have a happy and or respectful one of those two depending on how you choose to celebrate it we're not going to describe it to you um, so yes until then thanks very much for listening we'll see you soon goodbye Bye. goodbye